Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at fifty to eighty percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tonight's History Hits, another remarkable story of resistance from the Second World War today on the podcast after we had the extraordinary story of the Dutch resistance heroines uh, earlier in the week. Please go and check that podcast out. Today we are talking about the Polish resistance, in particular one extraordinarily brave Polish freedom fighter, Witold Pilecki, who volunteered, yes, volunteered to go to Auschwitz and find out what was going on there. Auschwitz uh, concentration camp, which would transition as the war went on into a site of industrial slaughter, a site of genocide. And Witold Pilecki was an eyewitness to that slaughter, uh, and he was the first person to warn the outside world what was going on. Uh, in this podcast, you'll hear from historian Jack Fairweather telling me the story of this absolutely extraordinary human being. Auschwitz was liberated by the Soviet Red Army 75 years ago this month, and we got a lot of Holocaust-related material coming out over the next couple of weeks. It's absolutely fascinating. You can listen to it here on the podcast, or you can go to historyhit.tv, our new uh, digital history channel. If you use the code POD6, exclusive for podcast listeners, you can check out all the material on there for six weeks, absolutely free of charge. In the meantime, everyone, here is the story of Witold Pilecki. Thanks very much for coming on the show. My pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me. It's a big story. It's a, a big hero that I uh, got to follow in the footsteps of. Tell me briefly, why is he such a big hero? Witold Pilecki volunteered for a mission to Auschwitz. It's a completely mental story. Um, he went there at the camp's inception when it was a concentration camp for Poles. Whilst there, he created an underground organisation that became the first report on the Holocaust that unfolded in Auschwitz. Why is this story not known about in the UK? Is he, is he, a, big, is he a big star in Poland? He's become one. He, his story was repressed. Um, at the end of the war... He went back to fight against the communists in Poland. He was captured and executed and all trace of his wartime record hidden or destroyed. And it was only in the 90s with the collapse of the Iron Curtain that um, some of his stories started to emerge in Poland and, um, and his family discover what a hero they had. Uh, um, he hadn't spoken. He kept it secret, of course, his mission in the camp. So it's taken years for his story to emerge in Poland and now... Um, I got to, uh, to write his bi the first biography of him in English. When we think of the Holocaust, we think of Auschwitz. What's the importance of Auschwitz? Auschwitz became the epicenter of the final solution. It became a collection point for Europe's Jews for their extermination. 
and it's become a symbol really of mankind's darkest act of evil and um, it's essential that we remember that legacy. Um, the final witnesses of the Holocaust are dying. Soon there will be no living memory of Auschwitz. And I think um, stories like Paletsky's, um, who arrived in the camp before it became a death factory, slowly pieced together the Nazis' intentions and witnessed the horrors. It's, you know, it's essential that we uh, hear his story and remember um, because um, we're losing that living touch with, with Auschwitz and um, we, we mustn't forget. So, 80 years ago this year, in September, uh, the Germans invaded Poland, shortly followed by the Soviet Union. What was Pletsky doing in that brief but fairly heroic resistance to not one but two despots that were in, in, invading? So he was a uh, father of two, a landowner in eastern Poland, a reserve officer in the Polish cavalry. So um, he was on horseback with his men riding to meet the German advance and um, perhaps predictably they were annihilated um, like much of the Polish military um, fought a valiant rearguard action but ultimately there was nothing they could do against the, uh, the sheer force of the Wehrmacht and their new blitzkrieg tactic. So he then headed to Warsaw to begin a resistance cell um, and with a group of men they sort of recruited, grew and expanded and um, this incredible underground organization which isn't very well known about in the West started to take shape, um, the first resistance to the Nazis and um, it was partly in response to this underground that the Germans created the Auschwitz concentration camp. They wanted to start rounding up military-age Poles and locking them away. And uh, the underground turned to Pilecki and said, you know what, we need to find out what's happening in this camp. A few rumours were reaching Warsaw of terrible brutality. Vitold, can you go? And um, the title of my book is The Volunteer. That sort of suggests that Vitold was, you know, hands up, choose me. Um, in fact, of course, he had a real dilemma on his hands. Um, his wife and kids had snuck out of uh, eastern Poland that was occupied by the Soviets and reached a safe house outside Warsaw. He had to think about their safety. Of course, he had to think about his own safety. Um, but in the end, he made that momentous decision and he sat in apartment in Warsaw where he knew there was going to be a roundup and waited for the Germans to burst in and seize him and take him to Auschwitz. Wow, so he got in by, he didn't sneak over the wire. He didn't sneak over the wire. He sat and waited. And um, one of the most amazing moments of uh, my research was going to that apartment in Warsaw. Um, a lot of the city was destroyed in the subsequent uprising, but that apartment was not and I had the great privilege of going back there with um, one of the people who was in the apartment when Pilecki was seized. Um, it was his sister-in-law's apartment and um, on that morning when the, the German trucks rumbled up um, there was a three-year-old boy there, his nephew, and I met up with him you know, 80 years later um, and took him back to that apartment He'd never been 
and uh, the uh, communists had taken it over at the end of the war. So this is his first time back and he remembered uh, moments. He was only three, three at the time, but he remembered this one little detail about how as the Germans came storming up the stairs, he dropped his teddy bear on the floor. He was in his crib um, at, the, at the time and Paletsky picked it up, handed it back to him and just one of those moments that for me spoke to Paletsky's amazing ability to reach out to others uh, in times of great distress when you think he would be only thinking of himself. He was uh, trying to empathize with that little little boy and um, Marek, the nephew, um, remembered his sort of final words as he stepped into captivity, see you later. And um, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty special taking him back there. And what I tried to do for the book was then follow Paletsky's footsteps, you know, back to Auschwitz and then during his extraordinary escape from the camp and then followed him back to Warsaw, to that cataclysmic Warsaw uprising that spelled the end of the Polish underground and, um, and the destruction of much of the city. What, uh, what was the date when you got to Auschwitz? September 1940. And, and was Auschwitz at that point a work camp, concentration camp, death camp? What was going on there? Yeah, it's a really important point to make because I think um, a lot of people, myself included, before beginning research, think of Auschwitz as the death factory that it became. September 1940, it was a concentration camp for Polish political prisoners. There were Jews in the camp, Polish Jews, but they were you know, not seized specifically because they were Jews, but just part of these general roundups, um, which uh, was mostly Catholic Poles. Um, and uh, when Paletsky arrived, there were about 5,000 prisoners there already. This is about two or three months into the camp's existence. And Paletsky's first job um, was um, to survive. He thought he was going to go in there and start smuggling out messages and creating an underground. But of course, the camp was already on the track towards the Holocaust, a place of huge brutality. Paletsky describes arriving in Auschwitz and seeing 10 prisoners just shot in the head right in front of him. He's beaten and pummeled, brought into the camp and stripped and shaved and given a prisoner number instead of his name, all part of this process of dehumanization that was essential for the SS to turn prisoners into chattel, also essential as they started their experiments in how to kill that was to lead to the Holocaust. And um, that's one of the reasons why Paletsky's mission was so important was that he got to witness these steps by which the Nazis arrived at the, at the final solution in the camp. Um, he describes arriving as if it was stepping into another world, into a dream. Um, like a lot of prisoners, they were just stunned, cowed, um, unsure how to respond. All the old rules, the old moral order upended in the camp. And Paletsky struggled. I mean, he struggled to, struggled to find that sort of moral center that he needed to begin recruiting. Um, fortunately, that a couple of his colleagues in the underground had already reached the camp and he managed to track them down and they gave him the basis, um, the information he needed, the courage he needed to begin recruiting. And um, 
the early resistance was really based around just helping other prisoners. There was not enough food, they were all on starvation rations, so uh, Poletsky helped distribute food evenly among the prisoners. Um, he realised, of course, though, that this wasn't his mission, this wasn't going to stop Auschwitz. He needed to start fighting back, and that's when he came across this first huge dilemma, which was how to alert the West to what was happening in the camp. How do you get a message out of Auschwitz? Um, and, um, you know, Poletsky, really one of the great problem solvers um, that I've encountered. Um, escape, he realized, impossible because, uh, you know, guards everywhere, prisoners were gunned down as they approached the barbed wire. And indeed, any prisoners that did get away um, led to huge reprisals against other inmates. This is After Dark, myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, myths, misdeeds and the paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you're using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Did Pelecki... Was he expecting to just nip in and then nip out again and rejoin his family? Or had he, did he know what he'd signed up for? And if so, why had he done it? That is a great question. And he didn't know what Auschwitz was. was. The Nazis didn't know what Auschwitz was to become. Um, you know, it, this was... His story was to discover the steps by which Auschwitz became that death factory. He did have, of course, a sense, though, that... It was a place of brutality that 
people were dying there and it was one hell of a mission. So um, why did he do it? Um, Paletsky was a man of huge patriotism, deep faith. Uh, he was also someone who had a really incredible ability to judge people's character. His job in Warsaw before going to the camp was to be a recruiter. Um, There's a lot of hot-headed Poles wanting to take up arms around the Germans um, and lots of arrests and shootings. Paletsky had to work out who were the young men who could keep their cool, those who would make good operatives. And it was that talent that persuaded the underground to pick him and I think it was that talent that Paleski realized that he actually had something to offer, that he could go to Auschwitz and create an underground cell there, crazy as it seems to us today. So he goes to Auschwitz, he's looking at this petri dish of, of, of unimaginably evil experimentation. How, how does he start to get, create contact with the outside world? He learns that a prisoner is going to be released. It was a, the prisoner was, came from an aristocratic family whose hunting lodge had been used by Hermann Goering before the war and the right bribes and connections had been made. The man was going to be set free. So Paletsky tracks him down through, a, through an underground colleague and persuades him to carry a report to Warsaw. He couldn't write anything down, way too dangerous, so he has him memorize um, um, a report and um, no one had ever found that report until um, my researcher tracked it down. Um, it was one of those you know sort of eureka moments in the research. Um, we knew the name of the messenger Alexander Vilopolsky and had then found his uh, son who was a 80 year old gentleman living in Warsaw. He had no idea that his father was the first messenger of Paletsky's, the first to bring news of the camp's horrors to the outside world, but he did have this one name of the man he thought his dad had stayed with in Warsaw, Dembinsky, and armed with that name, my researcher in, uh, in the archives in London was able to sift through the thousands of missives from the Warsaw underground and find the one report the one folder, rather, that contained the story of how Paletsky's message went from Warsaw to London. And where the Polish government in exile were. Where the Polish government in exile were, where the, where the Allied command was, which of course at this time in late 1940 was just the British standing alone against the Nazi might. And um, she found the correspondence then between the Polish uh, underground government and RAF command. And that is amazing. It is really amazing. And um, the message itself is in some ways even more amazing. And um, when my researcher read it to me over the phone, it gave me sort of goosebumps to hear Paletsky's voice because uh, it speaks to both his desperation and his clear sightedness. This is what he had to say. Polish government, for the love of God, get the British to bomb this camp. Even if it means everyone dying in it, we have to stop what's happening in Auschwitz. And that was in October 1940. That message was read by Charles Portal, the head of the RAF, in January 1941. Um, and it's really one of history's great might-have-beens um, 
what would have happened had they heeded Paletsky's message then. You know, Charles Portal and the head of Bomber Command, Richard Pierce, had a conversation, debate about whether to, whether to do it, and they didn't. Meanwhile, Paletsky is still in the camp. Paletsky came down with pneumonia um, during that brutal winter of 1940-41. Um, he had no word from the outside world um, about what was what was happening. He didn't know what these debates were. One of his men um, managed to uh, set up an illegal radio station in the makeshift camp hospital so they could catch bits of the BBC. <laughs> A rather amazing moment to uh, think of them sort of dialing the knobs and listening to uh, listening this is to london here is london oh there was actually the german language service so it would have been uh, here is england <laughs> but anyway paletsky spoke german which was very helpful and one of the tricks to survival in the camp um but he, ca he carried on uh, reporting because the war was about to go through this massive change that was to place auschwitz very much front and center of nazi thinking and that was the German invasion of the Soviet Union. And Auschwitz was intended to become a huge collection point for Soviet prisoners of war, a huge slave labor operation uh, in a new camp called Birkenau. Now, as we now know, that, um, that didn't transpire. The Germans didn't sort of subjugate the Soviet Union as they intended. Um, but what happened was that they had a huge labor camp built and no one to put in it. That's when the Holocaust and Auschwitz's role in the Holocaust began to take shape. And um, Paletsky was reporting on all of this. His men stole reports from the SS architect's office and smuggled them out of the camp. They got hold of SS records chronicling uh, the numbers of prisoners coming in, the numbers of fatalities which they were smuggling out. At one stage, even incredibly, he stole the parts needed to make a Morse transmitter radio. And so as the first Jewish transports began arriving in the camp, he and his men were there tapping out messages, trying to tell the world what was happening. And um, he um, didn't stop, he struggled to understand Nazis' intentions, um, starting with the first gas experiments that were directed against the few thousand Soviet prisoners that did make it to Auschwitz, and then of course against uh, aimed at Jewish families. Um, you know, he he couldn't grasp immediately the genocidal intentions of the of the Nazis. Um, there was no word then for the Holocaust. Um, Pilecki simply called it a new nightmare in his, in his reports. Um, but of course, he did come to understand the full horror. And for me, it was, very, it was a fascinating struggle seeing him get to grips with the Holocaust. I think it's something that everyone who reads World War II history, reads about the Holocaust, has to do, um, get their head around how it was possible to kill millions of people, why, and you know, the nature of the Nazis' evil. And Paletsky was in some ways the first to tackle that, those questions, to try and put them into words. Um, and um, it also led to some just spectacular uh, operations by Paletsky. He realized that what was happening in Auschwitz 
um, had reached a new scale of horror and that it was worth risking escapes to get out messages. And um, he organized one of the most amazing escapes uh, by one of his messengers. Um, I think that, you know, with, from any concentration camp um, in during World War II, four prisoners broke into an SS warehouse um, just outside the camp gates and stole four uh, German officer uniforms, dressed up as SS men, marched over to Commandant Hearst's garage, took one of his cars and drove out the main gates. Um, you know, on the way they met the deputy commandant uh, riding on his horse and they gave him a sort of Heil Hitler and he saluted them back and then, you know, off they, off they drove. What's incredible is to think is that this escape was carrying the first evidence of the Holocaust to the West. Pilecki's messenger, this young man called Stanisław Yasta, broke away from the, uh, from the other escapers to deliver his report to Warsaw. And uh, Yasta sadly didn't survive the war, um, but one of those escapers did. In fact, when I was researching, he was still alive, um, 96 years old, Kazimierz Piechowski, extraordinary gentleman who I had the great honor of interviewing in Gdansk. And um, he recounted to me that escape um, and gave me the details of when the messenger broke away from the others. And with that date, and um, I was able to track down then Paletsky's report about the Holocaust in, in the Warsaw archives and you know, read those extraordinary, that extraordinary witness statement, that extraordinary call to arms to try and stop the Holocaust. Paletsky, you know, he didn't ask for, to bomb the camp. He realized that wasn't happening. Instead, he asked for uh, the Brits to send uh, the Polish air brigade that was being trained in Scotland at the time to parachute down onto the camp to attack it. Um, crazy plan. It speaks to his desperation at the time and his sort of pursuit of finding some means to get the Allies to attack the camp. And um, it became a really difficult time for Paletsky. Um, autumn of 42, uh, early, early 1943. He'd been in the camp for over two years at that point. Um, and he built up an underground of a thousand men they were carrying out these extraordinary escapes. They were risking their lives to copy and report and document the Nazi crimes and nothing was happening. And, um, you know, Pilecki was actually racked with a sense of guilt at this time um, that, you know, that, there were, that he was alive and so many people around him were, were dying. And uh, he describes uh, in uh, post-war reports this moment of seeing a family outside a, the crematorium by the main gate at the main camp and seeing um, a 10-year-old boy in the group. That was the same age as his son at the time. And they lock eyes. Pletsky knows they're going to be executed. The family knows they're about to get executed. And um, he's haunted by that, those boys, that boy's eyes um, that night and for the, for the rest of his time in the camp. Um, it becomes the inspiration to, for him to perform his final 
great act of heroism in Auschwitz, which is to arrange his own escape. Um, incredibly dangerous, even harder because he's arranged so many escapes for his men. He couldn't take Commandant Hurst's car this, this time. Um, instead, he hits upon a, you know, a crazy plan to break out of a bakery um, that's operated by uh, prisoners. Um, there's a night shift and um, it involves him forcing open the door and legging it essentially and having to make it 100 miles across Nazi-occupied Poland to a safe house, you know, with a little more than, uh, you know, a few scraps of bread and then in his prison stripes. Um, but, you know, that's what he feels he has to do because he comes to this realization that the only chance he has of persuading the Allies to attack Auschwitz is if he does it himself. Um, it's the, the last thing he can try. It's a sort of personal plea to the Polish underground to take action. So that's the remarkable uh, sort of denouement of his story in the camp. Um, and, you know, I tried to recreate the escape because, you know, one of those questions, well, the question I always have with Polecki's story is how in the world did he manage to do that? And um, one of the ways I found to answer that question was to follow in his footsteps. So um, the same day, the same hour, I went to that, the site of that bakery, it no longer stands, and staged my <laughs> own escape from the camp. I knew um, that he had um, uh, crossed the, the Vistula River um, at dawn. So um, by sort of legging it at a fairly crisp pace <laughs> at 2 a.m. in the morning, um, I was able to sort of rough, get a rough idea of exactly where it was that he crossed, crossed the river. Um, he gives a few names of the towns that he stopped off on, on and hid in on his, uh, on his sort of epic journey to uh, safety. And um, I went to those towns and it's one of those great joys of the research. You know, I show up with my notebook and uh, my researcher and start asking questions about Poletsky and lo and behold a couple of old ladies come up and say oh yeah I knew Poletsky he sheltered in my parents house I was four or like five at the time and um, you know they took us in and uh, gave us cake and tea as is uh, <laughs> as is customary and um, you know there was just this wonderful sense of shadowing Paletsky that we were sitting in the same room where he had had you know tea and cake and lo and behold here we were with the family members who had been with him then um, in turn giving us their memories of the sort of bedraggled man who had knocked on their door at midnight um, so Paletsky makes it to the safe house and then begins his efforts to attack the camp um, he can't persuade the underground uh, locally that um, that they should. In fact, they actually think he's a German spy. You know, they can't believe he's escaped the camp. It's so unlikely that they're like, well, he must be here sent to sort of as an agent prov provocateur. Um, and, you know, Paletsky comes up with an idea that just him and a, a few of his mates are going to bust through the gate camp gates and try and, you know, create a diversion long enough for the underground and the camp to uh, stage an uprising. Um, it's a mad plan. 
which um, he's, hap he's finally dissuaded from by the head of the underground in Warsaw, who says, look, Auschwitz, we've got your report. We know, we know it's important, but things are happening in the war. This is 43, 44. The Soviets are now rolling back the Germans. Soviet occupation of Poland is looking increasingly likely. This is um, the same Soviet forces that had helped begin World War II by you know, signing a pact with Hitler to divide the country. Um, They're going to be no friends of Poland. And so the underground's focus is really how to stake their independence um, against the Germans, against the Soviets. And um, that becomes the genesis of the uprising. So there are no spare troops, no spare capacity to deal with Auschwitz. The whole focus then is on saving Poland. And, you know, Pilecki reluctantly uh, agrees with them. He writes the first of his sort of long reports about his time in the camp, amazing document, the first attempt to really grapple with what's happening in Auschwitz, um, to write the history of Auschwitz. Um, and then he plunges into the Warsaw Uprising. and uh, Which is a disaster. Well, for the, for the Poles, it's the destruction of Warsaw. The Soviet forces refuse to get involved. They let the Poles burn themselves out against the Nazis and then move in to claim the wreckage. What happens to Pilecki, just briefly, how does the story end? Does he end up fleeing to the West, or as you say, in Poland? He ends up being captured again by the Germans. I mean, what a moment to think of the man who spent, you know, two and a half years in, a, in German captivity, having to once again face uh, internment again. And he's liberated by US troops in, uh, in a concentration camp in Bavaria in 45. And he teams up then with the uh, Polish Second Corps, which is this force that had fought alongside the British in Italy. And um, they, it's there that he hatches this plan to go back to Poland and start gathering evidence of communist crimes, this time Soviet crimes, against the Polish population. You know, no rest for Pilecki. So he goes back in uh, winter of 45, uh, back to Warsaw, and starts up a cell, start, you know, starts work all over again. Um, and um, it's one of the, you know, one of, for me, you know, the, was the tougher parts of the research is seeing Pilecki really struggle with coming to terms with Poland after the war, coming to terms with his own estrangement from his family and his wife. Um, he never spoke to her about what had happened in the camp. Um, she only knew that he was there on some, some sort of mission. And um, his, his work against the communists meant that he couldn't really stay with the family. Um, so he would see them very occasionally. And, um, and then, of course, the hardest part of all, the fact that he was betrayed by, by fellow Poles to, uh, to the communist authorities that led to six months of very brutal torture and finally his, finally his trial and uh, execution. And um, it's uh, a real testimony to Pilecki um, at the end of his trial, he's been given the death sentence and it's customary for, um, for political prisoners like himself to then plead 
for mercy, sort of admit their crimes um, to the court in the hope of clemency. And Kletsky's um, invited to the dock and they say, so what have you got to say for yourself? And he says, um, I'm not sorry for anything I did. I die, I'm gonna die knowing I did the right thing. Thank you very much, and that's it. And he's, um, he's, he's shot um, a short while later and then his reports are hidden and buried and um, yeah that's where they've where they've been 50 years um, you can go to the archive now in Ealing where his longest report sat for decades um, you know um, smuggled out of um, Italy where he wrote it and largely sort of unread and um, all of the archival material in Warsaw that was hidden by the communists um, is now now available and um, it's, it feels to me time that this extraordinary man should be celebrated for his feats in the in the camp and his you know as a as a real inspiration for how you can hold to your moral compass in the most darkest of times. Well, your book certainly does that. What's it called? The Volunteer. Thank you very much for coming on the pod. Thanks, Dan. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. Makes sense. But if you could just do me a favour, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's a tough world out there. Law of the jungle out there. And uh, I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.